I'm Roisin Tracy, the Media and Communications Officer at Fight for Sight, and this is I Research Matters, the podcast exploring the personal stories of those living with sight loss and the latest breakthroughs in eye research. Sight loss can strike at any age, anywhere, and early stage research holds the answers to finding better treatments and cures. Unfortunately, only 1% of public grant funding is invested in eye research, despite eye conditions making up more than 10% of NHS outpatient appointments. At Fight for Sight, we take on the biggest challenges in eye research, including the leading causes of blindness, glaucoma and age-related macular degeneration. On today's programme, we'll be focusing on glaucoma, its causes, the treatments available and what research is underway into the condition. Glaucoma is the world's second leading cause of blindness. It affects 60 million people worldwide and nearly half a million in the UK alone. Currently, sight loss from glaucoma is irreversible, which is why Fight for Sight is dedicated to funding the most promising studies aimed at preventing and treating this devastating condition. We're currently funding 21 glaucoma research projects across the UK. This research will have a huge impact on those living with the condition. Professor Keith Martin joins me on the programme now. Professor Martin is a neuroscientist with an interest in understanding and treating glaucoma, aided by Fight for Sight funding. Clinically, Keith specialises in advanced and complex cases of glaucoma in adults and children. He also led the glaucoma service at Cambridge University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust. Earlier this year, he joined the Centre for Eye Research Australia as their Managing Director and as Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Melbourne. Professor Martin, welcome to the programme. Tell me a bit about what sparked your interest in ophthalmology and how you came to work with glaucoma particularly. Well, I started out in medicine thinking I wanted to be a neurologist uh, and I started out doing neuroscience and all that and was heading down the route of neurology and, and really I sort of ended up in ophthalmology almost by accident because I had a friend who was who was doing it and I thought it would be still useful as a neurologist to learn something about the eye and then once I started doing it, I realized it was actually a lot more fun and uh, there were a lot more treatments available and uh, there were a lot more things that you could potentially do uh, in terms of the research that I was interested in. So so I sort of fell into it that way. And then it was really mentors after that that steered me towards glaucoma. I had a, a very good mentor in Cambridge called, called Peter Watson who worked on glaucoma. And I went to uh, work in the US at his suggestion uh, with another guy called Harry Quigley who worked in Baltimore and and they were passionate about developing new treatments for glaucoma and I sort of uh, ended up following the same route really. Dare I ask how long ago that was? Oh too long too long I, I started really focusing on glaucoma around about 2000 um, so my training was fairly general until then but I did a period of research in the US trying to develop a gene therapy for glaucoma and that really got me uh, hooked and I haven't really looked back since. You're very much an expert in the field of glaucoma. Could you explain what glaucoma is for those who might not be familiar with the condition? So glaucoma is a condition that affects the connection between the eye and the brain. Uh, So the brain is connected to the eye via a nerve called the optic nerve. And that is the nerve that transmits the messages from the eye back to the brain. And what happens in glaucoma is that nerve gradually gets damaged over time. And so you can think of it a little bit like a camera connected to a computer. If the cable gets gradually damaged over time, then the picture quality gradually degrades. And you might not notice it too much initially, but gradually as as more and more damage occurs, 
uh, the picture gets worse and worse. And that's sort of what happens in, in glaucoma. And it's associated with pressure in the eye. And a high pressure in the eye is a risk factor for glaucoma, but it can occur really at, at, at any pressure in the eye. I imagine having worked so closely with it all these years that you, you've come into contact with a lot of people who suffer from glaucoma. So in your experience, what impact does glaucoma have for the people who are living with it? So in the early stages of the condition, it has very little impact at all. And that's one of the problems, really, because because the condition can often become um, quite advanced before people actually realise that they have it. And so... Um, it's in the later stages of the disease that people perhaps might start bumping into things or, or tripping over things or, or falling. And we know that glaucoma patients have a higher risk of, of all of those things. And then as it gets more severe, it's really the loss of independence. You know, you, you lose the ability to hold a driving license. You lose the ability to, to get out. We know that glaucoma patients actually get out less as the condition gets more severe, and that can lead to social isolation. So, so in the early stages, it's, it's really not very much at all. And, 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 and so we have to encourage people to get regular eye checks so that the condition can be picked up early, because if we can pick it up early, before there's been a lot of damage, we can often um, prevent people losing uh, their independence in, in the later stages of the disease. You talk about, you know, the, the worst impact being the later stages. So for somebody who, say, they're 30 years old, they've just been diagnosed with a glaucoma, how long would that time span be before they will start experiencing those late stages, we'll say? So if it's detected, um, and uh, for the vast majority of people, we can effectively treat glaucoma and prevent it interfering with their quality of life during their, their lifetime. So that's the good news. And so so even if it's picked up relatively early in life, I have lots of patients who are in their 30s and 40s. And uh, and even then, if we get it relatively early, then uh, it, it, it can be effectively treated. But a lot of my research work is, is aimed at treating those 10 or 15% of people that, that remain at high risk of, of um, losing a lot of vision despite the treatments that we have available at the moment. So, so, so it's not all doom and gloom for most people, but, but for the small proportion who either have very advanced disease when it's picked up or continue to deteriorate despite existing treatments, then there's, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. And what are those existing treatments that are available now? So all of the treatments for glaucoma that we have at the moment um, work um, by the same mechanism. So they work by lowering the pressure within the eye. And uh, and we can do that either by using eye drops um, to reduce the amount of fluid produced inside the eye or, or help that fluid to drain away. Or we can use laser treatment, again, to help the fluid to drain away or to reduce its production. Uh, or we can use surgical treatments where we do an operation, again, to, to, to help reduce the pressure in the eye. Um, but all of the, the treatments we have available work by reducing the pressure in the eye. And, uh, and sometimes that doesn't work. And so that's why we're, we're on the hunt for, for new approaches and new treatments for this condition. So in terms of research and, and the, those new approaches, what research has gone on so far? And then what breakthroughs have there been in the last few years? Well, we've learned a tremendous amount about um, how the optic nerve is damaged in glaucoma over the last few years. And that has been a really exciting period to be involved in the research because it's only by understanding the mechanisms of how the nerve gets damaged that we can start to look at what new treatments might be effective. And so, for example, we've learned how to image the optic nerve in very, very great detail. And we can pretty much see 
almost individual cells um, within the, the the retina now with with the conventional imaging techniques that we have in the clinic, and uh, and so that ability to see the degenerative process in detail has been um, very very powerful. Other things that we've learned, we've learned about what different things can go wrong, and we and we've learned that not all glaucoma is the same, and 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 some uh, glaucomas that run very strongly in families probably have a different mechanism of how the degeneration occurs compared to, for example, people who are very short-sighted or, or people who have um, low blood pressure. Uh, these, these may have a different type of glaucoma. And then in terms of treatment, we've come a long way in, in terms of the range of medications that we have available to lower pressure. So 20 or 30 years ago, there were only a very small number, and now we have a, a wider range of medications available. Laser treatment has also developed, so that's becoming more widely widely used. And there's been some very important research published over the last year coming out of Murfield's Eye Hospital and, and Gus Gazard's work demonstrating that the uh, use of laser treatment can be cost-effective and clinically effective in, in early glaucoma. And then there are a whole range of different technologies which are being developed to help lower pressure, um, little uh, devices that can help um, with lowering pressure uh, called minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, and that's been um, quite a focus of interest over the last uh, few years. So a lot of range of activities going on um, and a lot of uh, new treatments coming coming through. You mentioned that research in the last few years has allowed you to see more closely how the optic nerve can be damaged. How is it damaged? So the damage occurs at the point where the optic nerve leaves the eye to head back to the brain. Um, and either due to high pressure or because the nerve is more vulnerable, it's more susceptible to being deformed. So effectively gets squished. Um, and, uh, and I say that can be either because the pressure is too high or because the nerve is more susceptible to um, pressure-induced damage than, than normal. And the problem is that when that damage occurs, it doesn't repair. And so if we damage a nerve in our skin or, or some other part of our body, outside of the brain and the eye, uh, it will often recover uh, over time, but that doesn't happen. And so every time we lose one of these little fibers that connects the eye to the brain, it's gone forever. Um, and, and, and that damage occurs at the level where the optic nerve leaves the, the eye. Okay, and you yourself have been working on new strategies to repair that damage to the optic nerve that, that is caused by glaucoma. So can you tell me a bit about why this research is needed and how you're going about exploring those strategies. Yeah, so one of the things that we have been really focusing on is looking at how to repair the nerve rather than just try and slow down degeneration. And so so all of the treatments that we have at the moment that reduce pressure, they don't ever re really improve the vision. And so if you've lost vision, uh, the best case scenario with current treatment is that we can try and slow down further loss of vision. Um, we can't restore vision. And so so what we're focused on doing is learning how to regenerate the optic nerve, how to make it grow back. Um, and that may seem sound like it's you know just too difficult, but actually lots of nerves in the body know how to grow back. And we can learn from what the differences are between nerves in our skin, for example, compared to nerves in our optic nerve. What, what mechanisms are there in the skin that allow those nerves to regenerate that have been lost uh, in the eye and in the brain. And so we've been looking at, um, for example, how 
essential molecules are transported along nerves. And, and we find that that's one of the things that seems to go wrong um, or not go wrong, but we lose the ability to do that as we get older. And, and if we lose that ability, we can't regenerate the nerve. And so, so a lot of the focus of the work that we're doing that's funded by Fight for Sight is understanding what those mechanisms are and how to enhance them. And we found some really interesting uh, things over the last um, few months that, that uh, are going to be explored in the, in the recently funded project. And that's, so we're really excited about being able to get on with that with, with the help of Fight for Sight. And can you tell us more about what those interesting findings are? So if, if you think of the uh, optic nerve as it connects the eye to the brain, it has to transport material um, from the eye to the brain and back again. And so in those little um, connections, it's almost like a railway system. And, and so you have um, proteins, which are called motor proteins, that are like the little trains that go in different directions and carry cargo. And what we think happens as we get older is that some of those trains lose the ability to couple on different types of cargo. And so the connection to, to the, the um, railway trucks, if you like, that carry the, the, the materials that you need to transport, those connections um, don't work as well as they did when our brains and eyes were developing. And one of those connectors is called protrudin. Um, and, and this is something that we've discovered that if we increase um, the amount of this coupling molecule called protrudin, we can actually enhance the ability of adult optic nerve fibers to move stuff to the point of injury. And if they can get the stuff there, the, the essential molecules, they have a far better chance of actually regenerating. And so, so we found that by upregulating this, this protruding molecule that helps to couple that cargo, we can enhance the regeneration of the optic nerve. And so we can actually get these fibers to grow back towards the brain. Uh, which, which which we think is quite exciting. For our listeners who might be at home listening to this, they maybe they have glaucoma or they have optic nerve damage. And, you know, they're hearing this, they're very impressed with the science, but they're wondering what exactly this will mean for them. Yeah, so the, the um, regeneration of the optic nerve um, will take some, some time. And so this is not ever going to be the only strategy that we pursue. Um, and, and I think it will be most useful for those with the most profound visual loss. So this was not something that we're going to be applying to people with mild to moderate glaucoma. Um, I think the first application of this type of technology will be in uh, conditions where, where pretty much all vision has been lost. And we're trying to get some useful vision back again um, to help people navigate, for example. So I think in the early stages, this sort of technology will not bring back, um, if you've lost reading vision, it probably won't bring back reading vision. But we're um, and so the other part of this is, is the other strategy that we use to try and protect uh, vision, even when there's been quite a lot of damage, to prevent that last bit of vision um, being lost. That's very important too, as well as the, the work to regenerate. But, but I think you know, we, there has been real progress in, in regenerating the optic nerve. Um, and a lot of that has come from the work that we do with people working on the spinal cord. So believe it or not, we work on... Uh, the same problems um, and uh, regenerating the spinal cord is, is, is a very similar problem in a lot of ways to regenerating the optic nerve. And so we've been learning from each other 
And in the same way that there's been progress in repairing the spinal cord, we're, we're, we're applying that sort of knowledge to help to repair the optic nerve. Professor Martin, in your own experience, what are the biggest challenges in your research and I guess in eye research in general? I think the eye is a fantastic, you know, organ to work on because a lot of what we do in terms of research can be translated into new treatments that, that benefit the quality of life of our patients. So that's, um, that's, that's great. Uh, I guess the, the funding environment is, is a big challenge and, and getting research done. Um, and I, I'm currently leading groups both in uh, the UK, in, in Cambridge and in Australia. And in both situations, uh, it's really hard to get good research funded. Um, and and so we, you know, with the current funding mechanisms that are in place, and for, from charities like Fight for Sight or, or the government or other organisations, we can only fund, fund a, a very small proportion of of the good studies that come through. And so, so I think the challenge is how we make the case for the importance of eye research. The amount of money that goes into other domains like uh, like cancer research, which is very important and justifiable, is hugely more than 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 we're able to put into to eye research and so i think it's it's really important that we make the case um to the public that that eye research is really important it's it's a tiny proportion it's less than one percent of what is spent on cancer research is spent on eye research so so i think that's that that's a big challenge and uh, and fact precise are are fantastic at getting that message out and and everybody who's experience visual loss and knows how important it is, but it's sometimes it's not something which is as apparent or uh, as as visible, if you like, that compared to some other conditions. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I've, I've wondered a lot about why th- this is. And I think it's sometimes not as obvious to people that the people around them have lesser levels of visual loss. You know, everybody knows when somebody's diagnosed with, with cancer, everybody's lost people to, to the condition. But it's not until you experience visual loss yourself or somebody experiences it who's, who's very close to you at a severe level, that you realise what a profound impact it has on people's quality of life. So, so I think that's that's one aspect of it. I think there's a perception sometimes that high charities are receive more funding than they actually do, and and people see um, organisations that that are that are quite visible and assume that you know they're 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 okay and they're 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 raising the necessary amounts of funds. That that is not the case. There's definitely a need for more research, and uh, and even within the neuroscience community, the, the the funding opportunities tend to be sort of soaked up by Alzheimer's disease and 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 conditions such as that. Which again, that's really important research, but but it does tend to sometimes soak up some of the resources that, that could actually otherwise be be used to support eye research. So, so I'm not saying we should take funding away from, from those other fields that are really important, but it's really how do we grow the pie and how do we make sure that a higher proportion of the good quality research that, that people have the ideas and the, the ability to do, how to make sure that a larger proportion of that actually gets done. Absolutely. And do you think we're likely to see a breakthrough in treatment for glaucoma in the next five to 10 years? Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm biased, but I think, you know, some of the other um, projects that we're working on, and particularly gene therapies for glaucoma, I think have real promise to change things over the next um, small number of years. So I think these are closer. Um, gene therapies are already coming into routine clinical use for other eye diseases. Um, we're working on a, a new gene therapy for glaucoma. Uh, which is in advanced preclinical development, and that's been taken on by a large uh, pharmaceutical company in partnership. So, so that's starting to get to the stage where you know it's it's 
uh, we're planning uh, clinical trials and we're looking at how to get this done. So, so absolutely, I think we will we will have um, breakthroughs uh, within the next you know few years. Not even not even as far out as a, as a decade. Is that particular project what you will be focusing on now in the coming year? Yes, it's one of the the things that we're working on. I, I'm, I've always been very bad at working out which of the research projects we start are going to work and which aren't, and so we tend to cast the net um, and and have a range of different projects going on because you never really know um, you know which ones are going to be successful and which ones aren't. I think people sometimes think that you know research is sort of you you grind a handle and the research results pop out the other end and it doesn't quite work that way. Some things work and some things don't, and and uh, and and so we're focusing on the gene therapy and uh, trying to get some of that work done both in in Cambridge and in in, in Melbourne and trying to strengthen the links between the universities there as well um, because I think collaboration on some of these big projects is how we we make more progress and so it's actually quite exciting to be able to work between the UK. Uh, and Australia um, to harness the best of both to try and meet some of these challenges. I suppose as parting words, you mentioned that early detection of glaucoma is most important. So what is the advice uh, for people to make sure that if they have an eye condition like this, it is caught early? So the the advice is really that, uh, first of all, the people I'd speak to first would be those that have a first degree family member affected by glaucoma. Um, So if you have, um, you know, uh, a family member um, that is affected by glaucoma, a first-degree relative, so a, a parent or a, a sibling, uh, your risk of developing glaucoma during your life can be as high as one in five. Um, and so it's really important that that's picked up early. So those are the most important people um, that, that need to get tested because you wouldn't necessarily know that you had a problem and you don't um, experience tunnel vision or any of this sort of thing that sometimes people assume that will happen. You wouldn't know that you had a problem until relatively late, so get tested. The other group, I think, are as we get older and, uh, and, uh, and beyond the age of uh, 40, um, our increase, risk of glaucoma starts to increase. And by the time we get to 80, the risk is over 15%. So, um, so about one in you know eight people will will have um, glaucoma by that age. And so again, as we get older, it's worth having annual eye checks to pick up not just glaucoma but a range of different treatable eye conditions um, that can reduce your risk of of significant visual loss. Um, so, so I would I would I would certainly say that you know it's important to get tested and don't assume that you will know that there's something wrong. And any high street optician. Um, can do these tests, uh, so you don't need to see an ophthalmologist. You can just um, pop into the high street, and and if you are over forty and you have an affected um, family member with glaucoma, the tests are are free as well, so you can get these tests for 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 nothing. So so there's really no excuse. Professor Keith Martin, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for listening to iResearch Matters. To learn more about Fight for Sight and our research, you can visit our website at fightforsight.org.uk. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fight for Sight UK.